0: you know what the problem is? What's the solution? What do we have to do now to fix this? And what do we have to do differently in the future? You know, let's realize what we did wrong, not dwell on it. Let's just improve. And the big takeaways were communication, communication, and communication.
1: As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got my main man, Spencer Gray, with me. How are things up at Indy?
0: Dude, Jerome, things are great. I uh, really appreciate you having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, like we said, it's a little bit of Groundhog Day, but, uh, you know, just got to be grateful for what we have and keep on moving.
1: So, Spencer, if the listeners want to get in touch with you after they hear this amazing story we're about to go through, what's the best way to do that?
0: Yeah. So, you know, first you can check out our website, graycapitalllc.com, but um, you can also just shoot me an email directly, llc.com. And, you know, we're on all the social media channels, LinkedIn, so we're pretty easy to find.
1: Perfect, man. Gray Capital. That sounds really pristine, man. Do me a favor and tell the listeners a little bit about your background and what your current focus is.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I've been a, Lifelong entrepreneur. I love business. Um, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. I did my first real estate investment when I was still in high school back in 2006. Flipped a house right before the housing market started crashing, and you didn't know what I was doing at all. But had a friend's dad who was flipping houses, and he wanted to teach his son. So he told his son, he better get a partner because that's what this is all about." And uh, you know, learned a lot of, made a ton of mistakes. You know, barely got out with our shirts on that deal. Kind of kept flipping houses, started a couple other businesses, and um, in two thousand and fifteen, I was selling a business that I had started and you know, I had been doing flips, like I said, and I had this huge passion for real estate, but I hated the short term aspect of flipping things. and I really wanted to build you know long term wealth, long term cash flow. And so the focus really went to multifamily housing. So I started great capital for you know myself to build a portfolio of cash flow and commercial real estate, but also uh, to help others you know do the same thing and really build a robust, diversified portfolio to you know generate cash flow preserve, grow wealth, and, you know, just really be able to achieve financial independence, financial freedom, and, you know, all that great stuff that everybody wants to achieve.
1: Beautiful. And so I'm sure you made money on every deal and every pro forma that you wrote. Oh, yeah. Exactly how your repositions went, right? And before we we were talking about a 314 unit, talk to me about the solid B-class deal that you purchased.
0: Yeah. So this was a little over a year ago. It's located in Carmel, Indiana. Um, like you said, it's 314 units. Um, this was a, a joint venture project. So it was a little bit different from uh, your typical syndication. So we actually brought in um, an institutional investor that was going to be putting up um, the, the lion's share of the equity. So They're bringing 80% of the equity to the table. We are raising the remaining 20%. And, um, it was a $34 million purchase price. So it was, it was, you know, the biggest deal that we had done, at that point and we needed to bring somebody in with with some deeper pockets to get the deal done. You know, that's one thing I've learned about this business is that, you know, the deals get bigger and they can seem kind of insurmountable, but it's all about putting the right teams together, kind of bring the right people to the table to getting the deal done. There's also loan assumption. So the loan to value wasn't your typical, you know, 70, 75, 80%. It was closer to around 60%. So it required a lot of equity. And so, while you know the low T- LTV was lower, a little bit safer in terms of leverage, you know there's not as much yield and cash flow for using less leverage. So the deal initially was a little bit skinnier in terms of cash flow. But the general idea is we were going to go in solid B class property, had a lot of deferred maintenance, and the rents were way below of uh, the market. It's located in uh, Carmel, Indiana, which is a really affluent suburb just north of Indianapolis. We're going to go in, put about fifty seven hundred dollars per unit. You know, new flooring, uh, refinish the cabinets, refinish the countertops, new vanities. You know, a lot of cosmetic upgrades, but kind of bring it to the next level. And we wanted to still be the affordable option in the market, but we didn't really want, still want to compete with the high-end luxury units that were being built in the area. So we went in, and um, part of the, the strategy also was we were going to essentially fix the utility billback program that the previous owner. Um, had implemented they weren 't doing the calculations right, so some units the same unit type uh, or the same unit size and the same usage were being billed completely different things so you know one unit was being billed fifteen dollars for water and sewer another unit was being billed you know fifty dollars and there wasn 't really any difference in usage so we wanted to go in and they had been doing that with a third party and company we were going to bring that in house and have our property management company do it and uh, basically fix what they had screwed up. What we didn't think about is that half of the residents who were paying less than they should have been paying, even though when we changed it, it was right. No one likes paying more than what they were paying. And for all the residents that were now paying less than they were paying, they didn't care. It's great, but you're not going to go write a review because my water bill got reduced by $20. But you are going to go and write a review if you're Bill gets increased by twenty or twenty five dollars even if it 's right and so we had a barrage of angry residents who were you know calling our property management team you know slum lords and we were going in and raising prices because they hadn 't raised rent for years and It was just a ton of just negative press and um, just negative experiences from our residents, which is the last thing that we want to happen, especially at the beginning of a deal where we want to create momentum, you know, start the project, be able to prove to residents that we're truly adding value, maximize retention, justify what we're doing so we can get more in rent. But when half of the residents, you know, are hating us because their bill already went up, it's pretty hard to do that.
1: Yeah, I've seen some people phase it in where they'll do you know, the rent bump, and then they'll come back and do rubs, or they'll do rubs and then do a rent bump. But doing both at the same time, a lot of people say, I don't know if you should do that.
0: Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. And you know, in our mind, we we weren't thinking that much of it, because we weren't going to necessarily wasn't going to necessarily be a major driver of revenue. It was just we were going to fix the calculation. Because you're right, you don't want to just throw everything on the residents at one time. It's better to stretch it out, whether that's a rent bump or any kind of major changes. But this is something we just, we weren't anticipating. And uh, it taught us a lot of lessons about communication, building goodwill and the right order, the right way to do things for sure. So
1: I'm terribly
0: curious,
1: how do you get a hedge fund to come into a deal with you?
0: Well, you know, it wasn't necessarily a hedge fund, um, but they are like an institutional private equity group they do specialize in real estate. You know, it's a matter of you kind of reaching out and in finding these groups. Now you can go to like an equity broker who have all of these different groups, their contact information, and they'll put you in touch with them. And you'll typically have to pay that broker a fee anywhere between, you know, two and 3% of the equity that they're bringing to the table. And, you know, just to be honest, depending on which group it is, it can be a lot of hair to kind of get the deal across the table. It's not as easy as raising capital from your typical investor where they're putting fifty thousand or hundred thousand dollars into a deal if somebody is putting in you know more than fifty percent of the equity and I mean especially up to eighty they're going to want a little more of a say and maybe a little bit more of a return than somebody who's just you know writing a fifty thousand dollar check so you know it took a lot of you know brain damage to kind of get to a point where we were comfortable because you know not only you know, typically syndications they have some of their own fees but In this case, the LP investor, the equity group, also had their own fees. So they were charging fees to the deal. We were trying to charge our fees not to really make any money, but just to cover our expenses. And so, you know, the deal got a little bit skinnier. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're more focused on the outcome of the deal. We were incredibly excited about the location, the demographics, and the long-term prospects. You know, we figured getting through all this brain damage is worth it at the end of the day, if we can actually get the deal done. So we got to a good middle ground. You know, we definitely have to think twice before we do a larger deal that's going to need a joint venture partner like that, just because, you know, you're really getting in bed for someone that has a lot of say in the deal for an extended period of time. We always try to have as much alignment of interest as possible, but you're not always going to have that alignment of interest. I mean, they may have an event where they want to sell the deal right away for whatever reason. They've had some other things going on. There are other deals we may want to hold on or vice versa. We may see a great opportunity to sell and they say, no, well we want to hold on for, you know, whatever reason and giving up a certain amount of the equity that they're going to take that often is going to justify having them some of those major decision controls over the deal itself. So, you know, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. You get the big check and get the big deal, but you kind of have another group looking over your shoulder. So double-edged sword.
1: A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get their next deal done. We've developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they do, they create the time and location for them, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family the Myers methods of multifamily investing have proved to be the fastest way to establish credibility and properly grow an apartment portfolio. If you want to know more about our four-step process, jump over to MyersMethods.com to get our free four-step guide to getting into multifamily investing. Let's get back to the episode. So how do you get a 314-unit deal? Because there's not a whole lot of those running around in the marketplace right now
0: you know, off market. So a a broker had it, but they hadn't taken it to market yet. So, you know, they had it marketed, but a broker had it. So, you know, it's all about relationships. You know, we've had, we've done a lot of deals with this broker. You know, we're a proven entity. They know that they can come to us. If we say that we're going to do it, we're going to do it. We'll do what we say we will. And uh, we just have a proven track record of execution. So, it's all about kind of building that network and just being active enough. We also, you know, we partner with a lot of groups and do a lot of joint ventures, not necessarily the big joint venture with that like that um, private equity group, but with, you know, other smaller groups, mid-market firms. And just by kind of expanding our network, you know, we were able to see a lot of deals than just, you know, one typical firm would see. So this came across one of our partners' desks. They brought it to us. We kind of put it together and made it work. I love it. So let's
1: get back to the misstep. So- yep. Were there any like financial implications or collateral damage from what you guys did with, you know, doing the rubs and the rent bump?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it really put us behind about a year on our uh, pro forma. I mean, right now where it stands, we're back to where we wanted to be, but we really, we took a big loss and we had a major drop in occupancy. You know, the, when we acquired the property, the property was hundred percent occupied, essentially 314 units. You know, they began. Had, they hadn't been increasing rents. Residents love when the rent doesn't go up. So when we first, when the utility bill back and the rubs went in, that left a bad taste in a lot of residents' mouths. We saw a major drop off in renewals, and we just had some pressure on our rent increases. And so, you know, when occupancy goes from a hundred down to the mid, and even I think a bottomed it out at like 83 percent at one time you know that's a major you know financial hit you know most deals you know the break even occupancy is somewhere between 70 75% and um, while you know we have a ton of headroom in the deal in terms of our you know equity and the loan to value you know in order to hit those cash targets we had a, a relatively narrow needle to the thread so you know that major hit in occupancy uh, majorly affected cash flow for the year and we were still able to hit our target return for that year just because in our underwriting we knew that the first year because of the land value was not going to be a great year for cash flow and we weren't assuming we we're going to get the full rent bump in that year but you know certainly what our actual expectations for the deal is we always have higher expectations for how we underwrite and um, usually we realize those but in this case you know, it took a major hit. So the you know, further ramifications is, you know, we're gonna to look to refinance the deal at some point and to try to take advantage of that, all the equity in the deal, but we have to kind of wait until the NOI and the value gets to a certain point till we can, you know, execute on that refinance.
1: I don't want the listeners to miss what you said on the rent bump. You said we didn't get all the rent bump and didn't plan to get all the rent bump in the first year. Talk to me a little bit about you said you've seen some performance in the past and it didn't make sense. So walk me down this whole rent bump process because this is one of my pet peeves.
0: Yeah, no, same here. So you know we've done a lot of projects. I've also invested as a limited partner in a lot of different deals as well. The one thing that it's one of my pet peeves and it makes me roll my eyes is when you look at a pro forma and you see that 100% of their rent increase or that rent bump is factored into that first year of operations. So they're trying to get You know, $150 total of rent increase, but you're not going to be able to realize that over 100% of your units over your first year of operation. I mean, realistically, you know, on average, you know, there's about a 50% turnover. The turnover is not all going to take place on your first month of acquisition, it's going to be spread out throughout the that first year of operations you know it's usually scattered and typically you know concentrated in the higher leasing season you know the spring and the summer so the idea that you can achieve that hundred 100 percent of that rent increase in the first year is it's mathematically impossible unless you're able to get your aim for 150 and you can get 300 that's the only way to do it and so what's more realistic is you'll be able to achieve a certain amount in the first year, you know, but then the rest will trickle in after that second and third year. And by the third year of operations, that's when we really want to be able to be at market and kind of where our target rents should be.
1: I love it. So you, you resolve the issue with the rubs as well as the rent bump by just waiting it out and having a little more turnover than you expected. In deals going forward, have you made a process change that's going to prevent it from happening?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So the first thing we did is we looked at, okay, we know what the problem is. What's the solution? What do we have to do now to fix this? And what do we have to do differently in the future? You know, let's realize what we did wrong, not dwell on it. Let's just improve. And the big takeaways were communication, communication, and communication. And then community engagement. So we ramped up communication to all of our properties, really started communicating with residents. If we're going to implement any kind of program, really laying it out and being transparent so everybody knows what's going on and there are no surprises. Because if we would have explained that we were fixing a problem, we weren't trying to take advantage of anyone, you know, certainly there'd be some residents that would have still been upset, but it wouldn't have caused the all the collateral damage that it did. And then Also, because of that, we just started some of these just resident and community engagement programs where, you know, we're having get togethers. And, you know, this is obviously all before coronavirus and COVID-19, so we can't do this now. But, you know, you know, having activities for kids, you know, having, you know, pizza nights, um, just getting everybody together, meeting the management, just engaging and just putting a personal face, you know, on the property management team, on the corporate team. And, you know, really just trying to build goodwill in the community because we we want to go in there and be viewed as people who are improving a community and truly adding value. Not adding value to make more money, but we're adding value to the community to improve everyone's lives and everyone's living experience. And if we can really demonstrate that first, people don't mind paying an extra $50 a month to live in a better community and to have a nicer place to live what people don't like is when the rent gets increased and they don't see any value in exchange. So we want to make sure that value exchange is really there and that we're really demonstrating more value than whatever that rent bump may be. So at least for, you know, what our processes and systems and just the way I look at it, it's, you know, cause everyone talks about adding value, adding value about you know, making more money, but what kind of value are we adding to our communities, to our residents? Cause at the end of the day, you know, these aren't just widgets. They're not just cranking out, you know, a commodity, even though apartments are commoditized, you know, if we can really truly build a sense of community and do something beyond just kind of the basic, you know, um, are churning out deals. Um, I think we can do something greater than just, you know, doing a good deal. So that's kind of the takeaway that I, I got from it.
1: Beautiful. And so the final question I have is what words of wisdom do you have for the listeners?
0: Yeah. So I kind of like I I said, don't focus on the problem as much as focusing on the solution. You know, if you can, if you just focus on the problem, you're just going to dwell in negativity. But if you start focusing on the solution and the array of different solutions, I think multiple doors are going to open up. Um, The second piece is just never assume anything. We assumed that we were going to fix what we perceived as a problem would be a good thing. And that we didn't have to communicate. We should have never, assumed that. And then just, you know, communication is key. Communication, communication, communication.
1: Spencer, this has been a great episode. You've been tickling all the things that jump up when I look at deals and things I've learned through the School of Hard Knocks. So I appreciate you sharing this with the listeners so they don't have to make the same missteps. Again, man, thank you again for being so generous and we'll talk to you soon.
0: No, absolutely, Jerome. Thanks again for having me.
1: You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.